Hello, and welcome to the Lancet Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Niall Boyce, editor of the Lancet Psychiatry. Today we're talking about a substantial group of people who are in many ways marginalised and whose health and well-being generally takes a back seat to what might be seen as more sympathetic causes. These are people who are in the prison system, and I think they deserve much more attention from practitioners and researchers First of all, because of their clinical need, and second, because it's in the interests of society as a whole that the prison system should rehabilitate, in every sense of the word, its inmates. We know that people who've been in prison die earlier than those who haven't, but why is this? A new study looks at data from the Swedish system to find answers. I'm joined today by one of the authors, Sina Faisal of Oxford University. Hello, Sina. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your interest in this topic? My name um, is Sina Faisal. I'm a professor of forensic psychiatry based at uh, Oxford, Department of Psychiatry in Oxford. I've been working on prison health, prison mental health for around 15 years. I started off actually my first big research project was I was a clinical research worker and I went and interviewed over 200 older men in prison to um, document their psychiatric and physical health needs. That really got me interested in this whole area because there was so much unmet need and so much psychiatric and physical comorbidity in this population. From there I went and did some work on suicide risk in prisoners and that's inside prison and now we're just starting to do some work on people who've just been released from prison on so post-release mortality and post-release def- offending and this is a new uh, new set of projects and this is the first piece of work to come out of it. So from the previous work that you've done what do we know about the health of prisoners and about their mental health and, and why do you think it's important? One of the things is uh, the that people have studied is is the mental health of prisoners and um, there's been over a hundred studies now looking at the prevalence of different mental illnesses and mental health problems in prisoners. I think overall we're talking around one in seven prisoners have a serious treatable mental illness such as a psychotic illness like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or a major depressive disorder. So that's about one in seven, and that's been shown all over the world in in, in low- and middle-income countries as well as high-income countries. It's been shown over um, 40 years of research on, on looking at prevalence of these illnesses. So we've got quite a good handle on what the problems are. We don't have much of a handle on what to do about the problems. Equally, we don't know as much about what happens to people after they leave prison. So in prison, we know high rates of mental illness, treatable mental illness, also it's consistent with high rates of suicide, so suicide mortality tends to be around five times what you would expect. There are other problems um, in prisons including violence, including quite a lot of victimization, sexual and violent victimization, and lots of drug drug abuse and um, uh, also some alcohol abuse sometimes in prison. So quite a sort of nexus of, of, of health problems range from um, not so serious health problems to very serious health problems. And of course people come out of prison and at that point that's something which general health services, mental health services have to deal with. You chose uh, in this study to look at the Swedish uh, population, the Swedish prison population. Uh, Why was it that you chose this particular data set? Well, I think it's um, it's it's one of the best data sets to um, enables you to link um, information across different health registers. So what Sweden does is that it has a unique identification number every individual, every resident receives, and that used f- by different registers, including health, 
including crime, including social welfare. Also, we have a a multi-generational register, which means we can look at family pedigrees using this this um, unique number. And so what we did is we were able to sort of merge this question um, and, and also this, um, this, this unique number does apply, of course, to prisoners. So we know who's in prison. We, we know when, also when, when someone dies and what they die of and um, if they leave the country. So that enables us to, to, to be very precise about what, what happens to people um, over periods of time. What you've got then is is a, a rich and detailed and linked database. Um, what sort of questions, what list of questions did you ask of this data set? And clearly with any uh, epi study of this nature, people get worried about confounders. Uh, how did you account for these? Yeah, well, there, were, there are three main questions. We were interested in what the psychiatric determinants were of post-release mortality. So. We we knew from other work done, um, I mean, there's a classic paper in the New England Journal of Medicine by Binswanger in 2007 that sort of highlighted this very, very high rate of post-release mortality, and there's been other work since then. But what we wanted to know is what, what are the determinants of that, and there has been very little work on risk factors. Um, and because we know that there's this high rate of um, treatable mental illness and substance abuse in, in prisoners, specifically we're interested in whether these were related to post-release mortality. The second thing we try to do is to um, uh, use that to work out a sort of population impact. So if you treated everyone for these determinants, what impact would that have on, on all um, uh, mortality in, in, in the population? Um, because uh, more than 90% of prisoners return back to their host communities um, and therefore you know, is potentially an important public health issue. And we wanted to sort of provide um, an estimate of that. And the third thing we wanted to look at was whether it was able to to um, predict high-risk groups, so people that were high risk of um, dying after leaving prison after being released, and whether there was anything one could do using routinely collected information um, that would enable you to identify high-risk groups who then could possibly be targeted um, for certain treatments that we, we know might might help. These are very fundamental questions. You're, you're asking really what's, what's going on to explain this mortality, which we know of from, from the New England Journal paper, and then if there are any points for, for intervention there. Uh, what were your main findings? Well, there were, um, I suppose, three main findings. The first is that, um, well, we, I mean, the first thing is do is we, 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 we document the causes of death, the rates of death, um, and so it provides... Um, you know, a, a, a broad picture of what's happening. So we know by chapter, uh, ICD uses chapters to document what people die from. So you can look at infectious diseases, cardiovascular diseases. We were specifically interested in what's called external cause mortalities, so accidents, suicides, homicides. And so, so and, and we also looked at um, when these deaths happen in the first year, second year, and then we, look, we looked after 10 years we had of, of follow-up data. So it provides some information around that, and we found that in the cohort that we looked at, for a follow-up time of around five years, 6% um, of, of um, that particular cohort of 47, so over 47,000 people who were released from prison died. And... Um, uh, the the cause of death, 44% um, were external causes of death, so that's accidents, suicides, and a very small um, number of homicides. Um, so that's one thing, is just sort of provide 
um, an, an overall picture of what's actually happening. Uh, and then looking at psychiatric determinants, um, what was interesting and slightly unexpected was that the determinants were, were very clear for drug and alcohol problems. So people who had a history of drug and alcohol problems before release from prison. Um, but the psychiatric determinants, so severe mental illness, depression, uh, ADHD um, and other psychiatric diagnoses, they um, were not strongly related to post-release mortality and that was unexpected. Um, the second major finding is that this um, population impact, um, so if you look at all, um, like all mortality um, in, in, in Sweden, um, over this time period, I mean, we 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 tried to come up with what what percentage of these mortality uh, was was caused by people leaving prison. It was three percent. In some countries with higher prison populations, such as the U.S., we estimated that to be nine percent. Um, and and then we we provide an estimate of of, um, uh, of what would happen to that mortality if you treated all the people with substance abuse, and that would basically decrease by about half. Um, the um, and then and then we did some um, modelling and that um, uh, uh, there we 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 found that um, if you put substance misuse into um, a prediction model that does help humorous groups. And the other thing I forgot to mention earlier was that one of the ways that we dealt with confounds p potential confounders is that we did something that's unusual, novel I think in this area is that we compared prisoners. Um, with these diagnoses, so with, for instance, substance abuse, with their siblings who were also in prison but who didn't have the diagnosis. And that's a way of trying to separate out the person in prison, and prison has all um, all the stresses and, and come into prison with lots of accumulated risk factors, but it tries to separate out the, the, the impact of the illness from um, the prison setting. Um, and that's, I think, relatively novel. So we did that, and we did that specifically also for substance misuse. Um, uh, so we compared the people with in prisoners with substance misuse uh, w with their siblings who are in prison but without a diagnosis of, uh, of, of substance use disorders. And there we found that the associations we report held, so there was no strong confounding, uh, familial confounding or residual confounding. These are interesting findings and in terms of the alcohol and uh, drug use you have a point there for potential intervention but let's pick up on one of the main points I'm sure listeners will be wondering about. You've mentioned uh, all of the advantages of using this very detailed uh, linked uh, Swedish database but the disadvantage of course is that it's, it's just Sweden. What would these findings mean for other countries such as the UK and the US? You know, to put it bluntly, is substance misuse likely to be as big a problem uh, over here or uh, a bigger problem or which way do you see it going? Well, I think it's a very important question and we we looked at it quite carefully and the way we looked at it is we looked at what what prevalences we were getting of our of the major mental health problems and we compared them to systematic reviews done in the field prison health and so for instance our estimate of alcohol use disorders was 21 percent and the systematic reviews find it to be around 26 percent so it's not a long way off this is in men and in men also if you look at drug use disorders we found 22 percent in our sample and that compares to the systematic review finding of 23 percent so 
quite similar for drug problems, maybe a bit lower our estimate for alcohol problems, but not not a big a big difference. And for for psychotic disorders, so the the the, the less common disorders. There again, it was very similar to systematic reviews in the field. So we found 3% in men and 4% in women, and actually the figures worldwide seem to be around 4%, um, 3.5% actually in men and about 4% in women. So very similar. So it seems that the, the type of prisoner, at least in terms of mental health problems, seems to be similar. We know one thing is different, though, in Sweden, which is that they're less prisoners. So they tend to incarcerate less people than the UK. So per head of population, it's 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 around um, half what it is in the UK and less than a tenth of what it is in the USA, which seems to have a very high incarceration rate. So it seems that less people go to prison, but they seem to be similar in terms of mental health problems. It, it makes you wonder then, I mean, who, who, who on earth are we putting in prison? I mean, who, who you know, what, why, why such large differences in uh, in incarceration rates if if it looks like this similar types of people are going to prison and then of course there's discharge from prison which is a, a good thing as far as the prisoner is concerned but can be unexpectedly very difficult can generate all kinds of problems uh, people are released sometimes um, in certain cases far from their home they need to find somewhere to live they need to find a source of income they have relationships which might need rebuilding or have, have simply gone and for people who are in that position, is contact with mental health services and substance misuse services usually a priority? And if it isn't, how might prison system help people to engage a bit more upon discharge? So I, I don't know the answer to that question, I must be honest. Is it a priority or not? I mean, we know that for some people with some, some of these illnesses, um, it may not be a priority. There, there may well be other more pressing needs, as the ones you mentioned, to do, in particular to do with finding somewhere to live. Often people are, are in temporary accommodation after they leave prison and they really need to settle down. And priority... Um, I mean, that being the case, I mean, how to improve their linkage with the services in the community is a great challenge. And there are some trials underway to try and figure out you know how to improve targeting i think the thing that we're saying in our paper is that it's it shouldn't just be about acute care it should be about chronic disease because what we report are that these risks are maintained well beyond the first few weeks they go on they persist for years afterwards and and currently the guidelines are often think about these problems in the acute situation they talk about transitions and i think what our data shows is that it's it's more than transitions it's it's you're talking chronic disease management it's a different way of thinking about this the other thing i think that's important and maybe has been missed to some extent is the importance of alcohol because so many of the the prison health and the prison substance use services are are focusing around particularly opiates and uh, alcohol is um, uh, doesn't get quite the same level of attention or funding and I think this just highlights the importance of that importance of alcohol to um, post release mortality and probably other outcomes as well. I mean, and one other thing really um, is the importance of just having good surveillance systems because we there may well be new treatments that are introduced in different countries, in the UK, maybe in different parts of the UK. And actually for us to know which ones work compared to other ones, it would be good, good to have good surveillance systems set up that actually... Um, track what's happening, what, n not just the the provision of the services and how many people 
take them up, but you know what's happening to mortality rates. And so one of the things we we do say is that strengthening up surveillance is is one really important thing going forward. Your paper focuses on mortality. That's clearly a, a very big and important issue. But besides decreasing mortality, what might be the benefits of um, better, stronger uh, alcohol and substance misuse services for people discharged from prison? Might there be benefits to society as a whole, for instance? I think so. And I think, um, I mean, some other work we're, we're doing, which is ongoing, is looking at whether these, you know, w what are the determinants of reoffending risk, particularly serious reoffending, violent reoffending. And that's one area where previous work has shown that substance use probably has a role. And so it has benefits for public safety, not just public health. And then, of course, there's, in people with mental illness, we know that comorbid substance abuse does worsen their prognosis. And, and therefore, actually, treating those individuals will improve their prognosis of, their, of, of other illnesses, including physical health problems, because, I mean, one of the other areas of our paper that we haven't talked about today very much is you know, physical health um, and, um, and the mortality that is, is also linked to um, cardiovascular disease, cancers. And here, I think, also treating the mental health problems will, will lead to better outcomes. Many thanks again, Sina. You can read that paper online in The Lancet Psychiatry, and it will be included in the print version of the May 2015 issue. Uh, but for now, uh, thanks uh, again for joining us, Sina, and thanks to you, the listener, for downloading this podcast. I hope you'll join us again next time. Goodbye.